I'm going to invite our uh, panel discussion folks up. Um, Rachel is going to begin uh, sharing, and Emily is going to bring down the, uh, the what are those called? The little cards with your emails on it for the drawings. She's going to put those right up here. She'll put the um, little plate thing up, for, up front, and then you can drop those cards off if you want. The cards will be located next to uh, the question asking cards. Stay with me. Hold on. Stay with me. Um, one thing that you guys were blowing up the Q&A, uh, blowing up uh, the, the website on, but also something that is a part of Rachel's story that I want to uh, address before we jump into our panel discussion. Um, medication. What do we do with it? Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Um, our church does not have an, an official position on the use of medication um, for depression and anxiety, particularly that we're talking about SSRIs, more, more likely than not. Um, we don't have an official position on this issue. However, our church is definitely not anti-medication. So we would not be a church where uh, we would say, if, if you're on medication, that automatically is a sin. I've seen people use medication. I've seen them use SSRIs in a way that's, uh, that, that's negative. It's, you know, I, I, don't, I just don't want to deal with this anymore. Give me, some, give me some meds. But I've also seen people who are taking medication because they can't get in the fight without it. They're, they're stuck in bed 20 hours a day. Uh, Medication can be very, very helpful for some. Um, there are questions about long-term use and other things that I'll, I'll let you guys, if you have follow-up, uh, throw that in the Q&A. We'll, we'll come back to medication if there's uh, more questions, but we are not an anti-medication church. However, we want to make sure that we're pursuing biblical wisdom when we're, when we're looking to medication to help us. Make sense? Okay. Um, so I asked uh, Wes and Jacqueline to, to be available for some Q&A, as well as Rachel uh, Robertson, who is a member of our church, and she is going to um, share a little bit. Thanks. She's going to share a little bit about her experience uh, with anxiety. Are you a little anxious today? Which I feel highly qualified to do, <laughs> since I'm so anxious right now. <laughs> yes. Well, Rachel, can you give us a little bit of backstory? Tell us about your struggle yes. with anxiety. Yes. Um, I have always had a tendency towards anxiety, but I remember it coming to a head in between my sophomore and junior years in high school. Um, it began with overwhelming guilt about really small things, like did I make a full stop at a stop sign? Um, and then it would turn into massive unrest about the guilt. I also always had intrusive thoughts that I couldn't rid myself of. Um, they would be awful and strange. They would come into my brain. I didn't know how to get rid of them. This led to more guilt and then fear that I would act on these thoughts. I felt like I couldn't trust my own brain. It was completely unreliable. So the guilt and unrest went on for several months until one evening it culminated in a horrible panic attack. Um, my mom sat up with me most of the night while I dealt with a lot of the physiological symptoms, the shaking, shortness of breath, the racing heart, nausea, paralysis, and the most acute fear I've ever felt. Um, my mom and sister had dealt with anxiety in the past, and I had always thought that that was due to a lack of spiritual engagement. Um, they weren't engaged in the fight. They were weak-minded. I had even told my mom during the months leading up to this particular anxiety attack that I wouldn't be on medicine. I could white-knuckle my way through this using the word. But after that attack, I felt like I needed to be taken to the emergency room or Dorothea Dix or somewhere where I could have some relief from the intense fear. Um, my mom has said that anxiety is like a saber-toothed tiger is in the room and you're the only one who can see it. And I had this mountain of fear in front of me and I couldn't even identify the root. Um, so we started going to a psychiatrist that summer. I was diagnosed with 
OCD, which is the guilt, the intrusive thoughts, and then generalized anxiety disorder. So while the immediate panic was relieved from the medication that I started, the general unrest was something that I continued to wrestle with and still do. I would often be in a conversation with someone and I couldn't focus on what they were saying. I was so distracted by my mind, racing a million miles an hour, trying to appear normal, trying to exhibit basic facial responses when I was thinking of a thousand other things. I also felt immense guilt at needing to rely on medicine when I thought I should be able to rely solely on God. I remember leaving a birthday party for a little boy who was turning five, and I was crying on the way home because I was so envious of children. They were lighthearted, um, and I felt like I had anchors strapped to my back. So over the course of 15 years, I've gone off of meds, up, down, done all the things. Um, and what I've discovered is that going off, typically for me, is motivated by my pride. I felt like the case study. I just recognized a lot of myself in that case study, the guilt. Um, feeling like you should be able to handle it. While I have lowered my medicine after feeling overly numbed on higher dosages, slower, you know, mental slowness, fewer emotions, and began utilizing other methods of relief, relief like diet, exercise, and counseling, I found that for me, medicine is a means of grace. God has called me to walk with this limp and uh, reminding me that I'm constantly in need of him. And I found that being on a very low dosage helps me function daily in life but it doesn't numb me, and it allows me to deal with enough fear to engage in this spiritual warfare. I don't think in this life we'll ever be able to untangle what is sin and what is the brokenness of the brain, so I want to do my best to allow this suffering to change me while still enjoying the grace of God through medicine that allows me to serve my family and my, the body of Christ. Um, so battling anxiety today looks different than it used to. First, what I know now that I didn't know before is that the intense fear does pass. It won't last forever even though it's impossible to see beyond it at the moment. Um, while I used to white-knuckle it, use distractions, give in to despair, just lay down, want to die, um, today the Lord has allowed me to use his word to deal with some of the fear. So typically when anxiety enters, I begin by walking through the facts to remind myself I'm safe, I'm surrounded by those who love me, the Lord is at hand, if God is for me, who can be against me? That he's allowed this pain in my life to refine me. I like to play worship music loudly to remind myself to keep my eyes on him. That He's a sympathetic high priest, and he holds my tears in a bottle. Um, I would like to add that in the midst of an attack, the intensity doesn't normally last for more than an hour. I do think the best thing to do is to distract yourself, whether that's to go running, do something physical, call a friend, and then to focus inwardly after most of the adrenaline has subsided. If I am able to focus, and sometimes I can't, I can read through some of my favorite scripture, Psalm 34, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Sometimes I imagine the angels of the Lord camping around me. 2 Corinthians 12, that the Lord is allowing this pain. He's chosen it, that I would depend on him. Uh, the thing is about pain in this life is that even a correct response does not relieve it. Even as I read and pray and preach to myself, the anxiety doesn't just disappear. I am looking to heaven when I know finally my mind will be able to fully rest, even if it can't fully in this life. And walking through anxiety for me looks like doing this again and again and again. Um, while the anxiety lingers, it doesn't have the hold and the power that it did before I reminded myself of the presence and the victory of God. I think sometimes obedience looks like living life in the midst of hardship. And I want to add also that battling anxiety allows me to uniquely feel my need for God and desire the word more intensely than I do in daily life. When I'm not dealing with this, 
you know, being in the word and, and desiring the word and communion with God is a, is a battle, like I'm sure it is for most of you. And so in this way, anxiety has been a gift that pushes me nearer to the throne than when my life is easy. Thanks for sharing. Praise God. Do you mind if I jump in a question? That Please, yeah. there, there was a question that I saw um, from uh, on the, the panel that um, what's the relationship between anxiety and OCD? Um, what Rachel mentioned, obsessive compulsive disorder um, is technically a, a type of anxiety disorder um, where uh, you have obsessions, things that, that get stuck in your head that you just can't stop thinking about um, that, that thing over there that needs to be cleaned or you, you, you think about how... Um, my, I might die today, and you get just captivated by this fear, or you're thinking about guilt, and it's just stuck in your head. You can't get it out, no matter what you've tried. And then the that's the O. The C is the compulsions that you respond to these fears by doing compulsory things. You you pull out your 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 hair, um, you you clean things, you uh, maybe repeat the same thing over and over again. You have these things that you're you're compulsively doing to try to deal with to give you relief and. These compulsions, they're not things that are like, like pleasant. It's not like um, you're not doing them for fun. You're doing them because you need relief. And then the D is the disorder that it's, it's so significant that it's affecting, like you're losing hours a day because you're, you're cleaning the bathroom. You, you can't get out of bed because you're stuck in those thoughts. And I had a professor who he said that the, the missing letter in OCD is the A, and there is anxiety that is just pervasive in this. And it, it's significant. It's a struggle that I know some of you in this room most likely have wrestled with those obsessive thoughts that I'm doing compulsions just to try to get me relief, not because I want to. I feel like I'm stuck here. So thank you for sharing a little bit about your experience there. Yeah. Can I, can I just, um, I just want to add to that. I think as Christians, there is a danger with, um, with the compulsions that there, there are rituals where it, it can become ritualistic, like I must pray now, I must read this scripture. There is no, um, where it, that's actually can be a ritual versus a personal relational thing happening with God in the moment. So I would say it's not um, that that is something that as Christians, I think we can, why the personal piece of who God is and what it looks like to actually relate and engage with him is so important as Christians, because I think we can think, oh, I'm doing good Christian things, um, but if they aren't connected personally with the Lord and how we're engaging, then it j can just become another ritual that for someone with OCD that can just be dangerous and confusing. These things that are supposed to be helpful and redemptive and good and relational become something that's distorted and not the way that it's supposed to be. Rachel, can I ask you a couple other questions? Yeah. What was the most helpful thing for you? And as you battled anxiety, what's been most helpful? The most helpful for me was when anyone, I think, validated my pain and said, this is hard, and God's truth and his promises, his compassion, still apply to you, even though you're not walking through persecution or cancer, um, but that the truth of his word and his tenderness still applies. And I think when you, for me, the OCD was, was less the compulsion, more the guilt and the intrusive thoughts. And so when you're dealing with this constant guilt, feeling like his promises surely could not apply to me. This is something I should be able to avoid, but knowing no, those, your pain, it's seen, it's hard, it's what he's called you to, and he'll be faithful. Kind of the, the opposite, what's the most unhelpful thing that someone has said to you, well-meaning, but, but maybe not super helpful? I think, um, and I had met, you mentioned this, the just, just pray, just face your fears. 
Um, I think any time that your pain feels minimized, you know, this is just a fear, maybe you just need to pray more, get over it. Whenever medicine is talked about like a sin, um, you know, when it's allowing me to engage the battle um, and get out of bed and engage in the fight, that it just, your pain feels minimized instead of, you know, this is something that God has called you to. What passages of scripture have been helpful for you? You mentioned a couple yes. already, but. I wrote a bunch down. Um, I love Psalm 34. That is my most favorite. It's the one that God gave me in the very beginning. I love the poor man that cried out and God heard him. It wasn't an important man. It was a poor man. Um, and his face isn't ashamed. It's radiant. The angels of the Lord encamp around those who fear him. I love those promises that God is seeing us in our smallness. Um, I love Exodus. I'm trying to find where I put um, 14, 14. 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about the thorn in his flesh. Psalm 4, 8, when David says that he'll lie down and sleep in peace, the Lord keeps him safe. If David can say that while his life is being threatened, then surely my life is being kept in the hand of God. Um, Matthew 11, where Christ calls the weary and the tired to come to him. Because anxiety is just exhausting. Your mind can never rest, even if your body can. And so knowing that you're being summoned by Christ to rest is such a welcome invitation. Well, Rachel has shared a little bit about her struggle with anxiety, but she also um, has been helpful for those who are struggling. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, Isaac did that in the back. Um, Rachel's been helpful for others. Um, she's actually uh, served as a lay counselor here in our church, and she has been walking alongside um, a, a few anxious folks, and she's been very, very helpful in these things. So I asked her if she would also stick with us uh, for the panel discussion. I want to get to some of the questions that you guys have been asking. Um, we'll take more questions up here if you want to write them down or if you want to continue to, to send them in on the website. I've got my eyes on that. I'm not checking my email or Facebook. but. Um, <laughs> key in on something she said just Please. very briefly yeah I really appreciated what you just highlighted there mm -hmm. about um, it wasn't cancer it wasn't something else mm -hmm. but it was own form of suffering and that as we walk with each other whether it's anxiety or something else that just something Dr. Ed Welch recently highlighted from CCF that regardless of the cause of suffering God always moves towards suffering people whether it's sin, whether it's something comes upon us like fear and anxiety, whether it's sickness, he always moves towards suffering people. And just one way we embody that as we walk with each other, like it, it, he moves towards suffering mm -hmm. people, regardless of why we're suffering. And I just think it's really, you captured that really well in your story. I just think it's important for all of us as we, as we seek to embody who Christ is and what he does for each other, that we, we move towards each other and, and we seek to offer comfort regardless of causes. Yeah. Uh, Sam Williams at Southeastern Seminary, he uh, will someone say that this isn't one of those things that you get a casserole for. It's not casserole kind of suffering, but mm -hmm. I, I hope that we can grow in that, that may maybe we do bring a casserole to that friend that you know is struggling with anxiety. Um, let me ask you all a question. Um, this is an interesting one. Do you guys, what's the difference between stress and anxiety? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think in some ways your body might not know the difference um, because you're 
cortisol levels, your hormone level, like your, your, your body may be interpreting it similarly. Um, but sometimes I think with stress, there might be, you might be able to see the external factors a bit more visibly. Like if all three of my children are screaming um, because they're all three asking me for something at the same time, I'm very anxious and stressed, um, but it's very visible as to why I feel that way versus the three children aren't screaming, but I still feel inwardly anxious and and I might not be able to determine exactly why. Um, yeah. Sometimes I think we can use stress as just a synonym for anxiety, which it's, they're, they're certainly related, but um, you mentioned cortisol, which is, is a hormone that's produced when, we, when we're stressed, um, when we experience stress. And that happens not just when you have like emotional distress, but like it happens to me on the bike that I, my body produces cortisol. Um, so stress is maybe a physiological, it has more of a physiological angle, but then we, take that stress and we get stressed and we get anxious. And then sometimes anxiety there, it might not be a stressful situation, but we're still anxious. Is that a decent nutshelling? I think, I think, no, I think it's good. And I, th I think the question still before us is what do I do when I'm stressed? Yeah. What do I do when I'm anxious? I mean, I think it's the same thing. I think of Psalm 94, 19, when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. And it's like stress, many cares many concerns, many, many struggles, but, but what ultimately actually calms the heart, even that stress? I, I think the question before still would be the same. Um, where do I go with that? What do I do with that? Is it all up to me? Or is there one who is, who's bigger and grander that I can trust? Related question, a bit of a head scratcher. What's the distinction between anxiety and conviction of the spirit? Can you feel anxious that, that I've done something wrong here? Is that, can you distinguish between those two? Can, can you clarify the question a little bit? I, mm -hmm. I understand. So there's anxiety over did I do something wrong? And maybe it's not versus yeah. I really did do something how wrong. Do you help, what I, how do you help someone distinguish between, ooh, I'm anxious because the Spirit is convicting me, or I'm, I'm anxious and I need to, I need to, repent and go before God and, and, and trust him in these areas? When is that conviction correct and when is that anxiety that needs to be repented of? I mean, it's, it's making me think of, um, it, like are those, are they laws that you yourself have mandated or are they true things that are accurate that God would call us to and yet still I think we could hold ourselves to something unrealistic that we cannot do apart from the spirit of God. So um, I'm thinking of pe people who may struggle with more of like a scrupulosity of like, um, where they kind of judge themselves a bit more and are a bit inaccurate because they have their own standards on themselves versus, you know, they don't understand themselves in what it means to be human and imperfect. Um, and not, not all powerful, not all wise, not all, but they might expect that of themselves. And so I think, um, I think in some ways, um, the spirit would lead you to repentance. The spirit is gonna lead you towards grace, towards knowing the forgiveness of Christ. And I think if it's self-condemnation or a judgment where you yourself is acting like God over yourself, 
that that will lead to like guilt and, you know, turn you more towards yourself versus, um, but again, I think that, I think the question is very similar to what Wes is saying. I think it's where you go with that. Will you turn towards the Lord and will you trust that the spirit of God is in you, that if there is a need for conviction, that his spirit will lead you to that versus, um, kind of more, um, where it's your own kind of view of yourself more so. Just a quick add-on. Do you have something? Did you want to say? No, you go ahead. You sure? Okay, sure. Um, Take it away. <laughs> I, I, I mean, just just piggyback on what Jack was saying, that there's self-condemnation, et cetera. Uh, Dr. Powelson has this helpful little section of a book he's recently written, and it says that a, a conscience rightly in tune is like a fine musical instrument, that it asks three questions, asks and answers three questions, right? One, what is the standard? that we measure ourselves against what God says. Now, we struggle with that, right, with our conscience, because it was a sin, was this not sin, but again, a conscience in tune with the Lord. What's the standard? It's God's standards, too. Who is the judge? That we live before his eyes and not before the eyes of ourselves, self-condemnation, self or the eyes of others um, and the ways other people view me. And then three, I think, as important as the other two, where do I go when I fail? that guilt and shame are meant to go someplace good, that I cast myself freshly on the mercies of Christ. And I think even that, the self-condemnation is like, am I, am I wallowing in, am I doing penance, am I thinking I need to be good enough to, and so I think those, those questions are just really important as we ask us, and going back to things that have been, that have already been shared in, in all segments today, including a testimony just now, is other people are gonna be very instrumental in that. And, and so if you're struggling yourself you may not be able to get outside yourself to do that. You need other people to help hold out gospel promises to you too. So how do you invite other people into that conversation as well? And I, th I think that's a key piece of it too, because if you struggle with guilt, shame, self-condemnation, it's hard to it's hard to solve that on your own. What book is that? That's his book called Making All Things New. Mm -hmm. This is we got a good question that I thought was interesting. I want to add maybe a facet to it how do you know when to seek medical help due to anxiety? Mm -hmm. And let me, let me jump back a, a little bit first. Um, if anxiety is a universal human experience, we all raised our hands, we've had some experience there. Now some is more severe, but that garden variety kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm scared, I'm anxious about that thing that's coming up, I'm afraid. I would encourage you first to be speaking to your brothers and sisters about that. That Wes mentioned that he was, someone was asking him, what are some of the besetting sins in your life? And for some of us, it's going to be anxiety. There are going to be times that all of us are anxious, and I hope that that's not something that, you know, I don't need help for that. I, I can do it on my own. That's another John Wayne thing. Um, I can do it on my own. And the body of Christ helps us in those times. So if I'm backing up a step, when do I need help when I'm wrestling with anxiety? I'd say we, we all do, and we're all in the same soup there. So how can we be helping one another in this battle so let me add another layer to that. At what point do you say, hey, maybe I need some counseling here, that I, this is more than, can you guys draw a line there at all? Do you see a line there? When does it become so serious that, yeah, we should probably sit down and, and have a meeting in my office? I mean, and on the one hand, I would say, like, there's not a line there in the sense of, like, we are all called to care for one another. We're all called to point 
one another towards Christ outside of ourselves. So I would say, like, on the one hand, there's, there's not a line there. On the other hand, we just kind of recognize that there can, when it becomes more debilitating and your functioning begins to be hindered more, and yet it's going to take a lot for somebody to be willing to, to take the steps that are necessary to remove the isolation. So, so on the one hand, I would say there's no line there. The call is still the same to remove isolation, which would mean being more honest with the people around you. On the other hand, I would say like when it becomes more debilitating and there might need to be more more involvement from like medical professionals and like when your sleep is disrupted and and I would even say when your eating is disrupted because if you're not eating then you're and you may not even realize that you're not eating so like you would need to even ask people around you because if you're not sleeping if you you can't sleep if you're not eating enough and all those sorts of things. And in that way, I would want a nutritionist actually involved, um, especially in women, because sometimes we just, we might think that we're fine, but we're not actually getting the nutrients that we need and, yeah. and all those things, so. Rachel, how did you know that like, yeah, I need to go seek some medical yeah. attention? I mean, I think whenever your daily function is inhibited and you just, I was having a hard time engaging in conversation, I was having a hard time focusing, you're having a hard time doing the next thing, completing daily tasks. Um, yeah, I think that that's when it's time to pursue an opinion. And you mentioned that panic attack that you had. When, how old yes, were you? I was 16, um, and I would say that that precipitated it. I think there's always steps up to it. So it, we'd been dealing with it for a while, um, but after that, yeah, I mean, daily function was was inhibited, and so I needed I needed a little help. Yeah. So the way that we view counseling as, as a church is that this is just a subset of discipleship, that we're becoming more like Christ. So trying to find a hard line between, yeah, now you need to go see a counselor, is, is we, we generally don't see a line there. However, um, when, when you're not eating, when you're not sleeping, those are things that that can go downhill real, real fast. And we'd want to make sure that we're getting the, the right people involved. God cares holistically for us, and we care too. So we want to help you in those times. And we can help you. Maybe, when do we need to see that doctor? We can help you with that, whether it's a psychiatrist or nutritionist. And again, sometimes you need someone else to f help figure that out for you yeah. because just on your own, it's going to be yeah. hard. I think one of the things that you mentioned, how do we get people out of that isolation? If we're doing discipleship well, from like doing life together discipleship well, it won't be as scary to say, hey, I, th I think I need to talk to someone else. That we're, we're fighting that isolation by the very fact of us doing life together, loving one another in that way. Well, and I would say too that um, a way that you can draw someone out of that also, especially if you are, if, if, whether you've chosen this or not because you have a formal role in this capacity or not, but if you're viewed at as more of a leader or more mature uh, among those around you, I think you sharing ways that you are weak, you sharing ways that you struggle, you asking people to pray for you gives those people, one, an opportunity to pray for you, but then it might actually invite them to ask you to pray for them, which then kind of opens the door and removes some of that. How can you help someone who, the, in their anxiety, they're starting to, to doubt their own salvation? That's pretty scary. That, I mean, if we're scrupulous and we're overly consumed with guilt and, and we're, our consciences are miscalibrated, then we're going to be scared of things that we shouldn't be. And the means of grace that we want to pursue 
they become terrifying to us. So if someone is concerned they've lost their salvation, are there any kind of things that you think of, any, any, any interpretive grid that you're thinking through that might be helpful for them? One, I think that's actually one of the most difficult things for someone to experience. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a slow battle for them. I mean, meaning that I think it, you, you even the way you mentioned your, your own, I, I, and, and you mentioned these are lifelong things. So I just want to recognize that, that that's just really hard. Scrupulosity is really hard, but a couple of things that I think are really important. I think one, other people have to be a huge component of holding out gospel promises. Uh, and that includes sharing where you see God at work in them and, and being, on, being on a grace hunt in their life and being able to say, here's where I see God at work in you. Um, my experience is, it's limited, but I've, I've worked with scrupulous people is there's kind of a lot of batting down of God's promises, like, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And, and, but how do you hold out? You know, God does these things because of who God is. And this is what he says. And... Um, you know, Psalm 131 is this great, it's three verses. Um, David uses this image of a weaned child, and he says, like a weaned child, I have learned to quiet my soul. But right before that, he talks about how he doesn't occupy his mind with things that are too great for him. Well, for every single person in this room, our salvation and the assurance of our salvation is too great for us. It's not based on how we can comprehend it because we can't comprehend it. And so that's, that's not nuts and bolts, but it is you've got to be able to hold out that promise for people and help them hold on to who God says he is and what God, and, and kind of when things get batted down, just to say, like, I know it's hard to believe this, but, but this is who God is, and this is what he, what he says, and how do we trust in what he says more than how we feel and more than, more than what's going on inside of us, that, that this is objective truth, what he says. Um, that's just one way, but it's really hard. Um, I was also thinking of, of Revelation 5, um, when John is seeing, they're saying, you know, who's worthy to open the scrolls, and Christ comes. Um, and just, I think that there's value in taking our eyes off of ourselves, because we can tend to spiral and setting them on Christ and saying, okay, who is he? He's the lamb who was slain. He's covered me in his blood. What do we know to be true? Going to actual scripture passages saying, okay, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, kind of walking through especially for someone who's so guilt-bound, you're walking through Scripture because you believe it to be true. You just don't believe it to apply to you. And then taking, finally just saying, okay, my eyes are off myself. They're on the one. My salvation is, is resting fully on him and, and really beholding Christ. I think there's even more power in that than looking at the verses that are maybe speaking to us in compassion. Um, it's just really setting our eyes on Christ which is a battle, which I don't want to make that sound like it's easy. Yeah. Do you guys have any recommendations for those who have physiological symptoms of anxiety? They have that shortness of breath, my heart is racing. That, uh, do you have any recommendations for them in those times? How can they fight those physical symptoms that they're experiencing? I mean, I think you gave, you gave some examples of like distraction and kind of um, trying to shift, you know, I'm th the example that I'm thinking of, I'm thinking about like any of our children who is like having a tantrum or like screaming and, you know, like, because inwardly it kind of, that is sort of the feeling in some way of anxiety is kind of, there's no way that you're going to be able to rationalize with it. 
um, because if, you're, if your body's already set on that physiological response, it's gonna take a lot, it's gonna take time to actually calm down. And so I think, um, I think breathing is important. Um, but again, not for the sake of a, not for the sake of, we don't want, we don't want less than breathing, right? Because if you can't breathe, like you, you aren't gonna live. Um, but we want more than that, that there, that it is the air that the God has given and that his presence is with you in the midst of breathing. So there's this way that the Lord is, is a part of your breathing and enablement. So I think breathing, slow breathing, there's, lot, there's lots of different breathing techniques. I think, um, I think something very tangible in the midst of it. Like I was thinking about the woman who's talking about overuse of plastic. I'm like, okay, well let's get her something, some piece of plastic that she doesn't need right now and let's make a bracelet with it or something that can remind her. No, the reality is like the Lord is more tangible than your accusation of yourself. Um, so I think the more tangible means I think are, are helpful in the midst of that. So that's, I think texting someone um, or calling someone, even if you can't breathe, but you've just kind of, maybe you could set that up ahead of time with someone to say, hey, I might call you. You might not hear me on the other line, but can you just talk to me or tell me about your day that will kind of get my mind off of what I'm feeling in that moment? Or can you tell me a story or um, those sorts of things? I love you. I also think doing something physical is really important because your mind is racing, your heart is racing, and so there feels like there's a discrepancy, like your insides are going to explode. And so when you're able to exert yourself, it just feels like, okay, there's a reason my heart's racing, I'm exerting myself, it, you get the endorphins going. I just think when your mind is going that quickly, we need to move our bodies. It's what's been helpful for me. Yeah. The one thing that I'll sometimes tell folks is that uh, I want to orient us to these things aren't gonna disappear overnight and your body is so conditioned and used to this that it, it, it's gonna take a little bit of time and oftentimes that's, that's one of those things that just naturally falls into place as you're battling anxiety in, in your heart and in, in your mind and the physiological symptoms start to fall away over time but that's not, that's not often the first thing that goes away. Two more questions for us. Um, genetic or hereditary factors for depression and anxiety. We got a few questions about that. How, do you know anything about, are those things often um, inherited by, by children from their parents? Others can weigh in here too. I'm no way an expert in this. I mean, I, I think it can be um, genetic. Uh, again, I, I think there's still that question before us that even if it's genetic, what do we do with it? Right, and, and where do we go with it? And then, you know, I think about my kids. I, I don't know if it's genetic. I certainly know that it's learned, and I, I certainly know that they can watch how I respond to things, right, and do it. So I think there's ways we do pass those things down. And when, I mean, I, my, my oldest daughter's five, and you can see her anxiety. She chews her fingers. You can tell when she gets really anxious, and, you know, she's in various ways seen her dad live with anxiety and, and do those things. And so... Um, you know, I, I'd love to say it's just genetic, um, because that takes away even my response, but how do I even then, does it become a discipleship opportunity that together she and I learn how, okay, how do we actually turn to the Lord in that? So I think it can be, um, I don't, I, I, but even then we still have a responsibility with what do we do with that, even if it's genetic, um, where do I go, uh, with it? 
Yeah, and I think even working with children, um, a lot of anxious children, their mom or their dad do struggle with with things I like it's it's some ways it's belief systems and things like that that they've learned or caught without necessarily the parent saying this that or other um, and even with OCD there have there is some recognition that there there's connections there and with depression I mean I think it does get down to like what's DNA and what's like um, living belief systems I think that those might be a little bit harder to parse out. Um, there is with OCD the, the finding that often um, strep throat and young children's can be a trigger for the OCD to kind of cycle start. Um, so in that way there, in that way that just minimally it tells us that there are like physiological realities, biological mm -hmm. realities that kind of are at play. Yeah, studies, there are so many different forms of anxiety, so where do you tackle? And the best studies, they do like twin studies, that you take two twins, same upbringing, very similar genetics. Um, one has it, one doesn't. Um, that makes us think it's probably not genetic, but if both of them have it, then there's some correlation there. Um, and that is high with anxiety, as, as well as many mental disorders. There's, there's something going on in our bodies, but we can't pinpoint it. I'm not sure if we'll, the, the brain is the most complex thing. I'm not sure if we'll ever get to that level where we can parse it out. Ah, I found the anxiety gene. I, well, I and it would be hard, right, to, to be able to decipher what part of the environment um, led to a response in a certain way that then your body thinks that that's right. the way that you're, this, this is an emergency or... Yeah. So even that you wouldn't necessarily be able to parse out. Exactly. It's, it's so complex. We are so complex. If you had to give one tip for someone that their spouse, their child, their friend, their roommate was struggling with anxiety, what would you encourage them to do? How would you encourage them to help? Last word. It doesn't have to be one word, but like the, the, the last. I thing. mean, for me, just very simply, what we're talking about here is, is, is if you're the one who's not, you're seeing it in somebody else, you're kind of the voice of sanity in that moment, right? And so how do you hold out those things? How, how do you be the one who just brings, who brings God's peace, God's presence, God's person, those things in the midst of Because they're going to have a really hard time seeing that. So how can you be the sane one? I don't mean that in a, in a prideful way, but how do you actually be the one to say, let's look to him. Mm -hmm. Let's turn to him. Um, that, that's, that's, that's often helpful to me. To, to add to that, I would say, and to do so in such a way that actually embodies the Lord's compassion and movement towards, um, in a patient, kind of long-suffering way, um, versus, like, coming, coming down hard on them or, you know, but more of a, yeah, embodying that peace because your tone and tenor are going to impact the other person's experience and, um, and, and I would say, like, how can you remove isolation and get them to take those steps to kind of be more open and honest with those around them? Yeah. I, I think just, I think there's a lot of value to sitting in the pain with them, um, letting them kind of grieve or have, have a moment to say, this is hard. I want to I see you in that pain. And then reminding them of truth. Okay, now we're going we're gonna to look to Christ. This is hard. There's a hope even beyond that this will pass, but that one day we'll never have this battle anymore. 
you know, Job's friends, they got a lot wrong with giving him some bad counsel, but they did mm-hmm. sit with him. They spent time with him, a long time with him, you know, just sitting and mourning with him over the hard things that were happening mm-hmm. and reminding us of the future, of what is true. If I could throw out one more thing, uh, last time we did this seminar with some of our lay counselors and our advocates in the church, and um, someone shared that, you know, they, they had a phone call with a friend who knew they were struggling, and uh, they said, yeah, I'm kind of having a hard time today, and the friend didn't really say anything. They didn't really give them any hope. They didn't engage with them. They didn't empathize with them. It, it's, it's really hard um, to do that, to be the helper in that context, but I want to encourage you, particularly brothers in the room, to be intentional in these ways, to be taking that step towards someone, even if you're not entirely sure where to go, even if, try to take a step. We need one another. I'm thankful for the body of Christ. And that's actually where I want to end our time is if you are struggling, please do speak to someone. Speak to the the person next to you. Speak to a brother or sister, a member of our church, who would be happy as a clam to come alongside you and to provide care. If, if you've got some significant struggles going on, please come talk to me. Um, come talk to one of the pastors at our, uh, at our church. Talk to uh, the elders. We care about you. This isn't something that we want to fly under the radar. So oftentimes after these kind of seminars, we think, oh man, that's me. You got me there. Don't let that feeling pass by. Let's grab a hold of that and let's ask God to work in these ways.